0: Damian Rogers, the poetry editor at House of Anansi Press, and you're listening to the Anansi Poetry Podcast. Shane Book was in Toronto last month because his latest collection, Congo Tronic, was nominated for the Griffin Poetry Prize. At the shortlist readings, he totally killed it in front of an audience of over a thousand people with his poem "World Town," and so I thought that might be a good place to introduce part two of our conversation. "World Town." Entirely windless today's sea, of these waters many names, the best seemed field of pearl leaves, for it smelled like the air in the house he built entirely of doors, pink school door, gold of the burnt hotel, two old church blues, the abandoned bank steel doors singular and immovably wedged over the family's heads, though as with everything corroding the sense of themselves slipping away in the heat falling through the day's brightness the way soldiers once fell upon him walking home with a bucket of natural water as he had been recalling the town square before the tannery's closing he and his father shopping on horseback in the noon prasa where they first saw a man crouched under a black shroud what his father called a camera his father forgot the incident immediately but for years the man asked whomever if they remembered a camera Vegetable stalls, the butcher holding the cleaver, a horseshoeing shop, purple berries, the long cassava valley haze, fishnets, a few crab baskets, and browning nets drawing by the ice cream shop. Seven taverns, a small unused ferry terminal, a map on its wall outlining the island in blue. The name's Good Dispatch lover's bridge pointed to by a mermaid of skin whiter than anyone on this island of Angola's descendants. Her red hair. I love the visual imagery in this poem. In our first chat we covered a wide range of subjects, but I found myself still wanting to know more about Shane's work in film. And so we started by talking about the half-hour short that he's now submitting to festivals.
1: This new movie, uh that I've just finished is called Praise and Blame. And it is a dark comedy. Uh, and it's, it's about a poet from Belarus, a uh, former Soviet uh, republic, now independent nation. Um, that, and there's a little bit of it's based in a kind of real situation, which is the plight of many writers and journalists and poets in Belarus is that they get jailed, um, sometimes killed, by the government. I wanted to write something that had a comedic edge to it that would also kind of um, hopefully highlight the situation that's going on, because it never gets much attention in the West. So I, this movie is about a Belarusian poet who's been in jail for a decade there, and he gets released, and he goes on a sort of a tour of these different universities, giving readings and teaching. And one of the places, the movie picks him up when he um, arrives in the United States to teach at an elite um, Ivy League school. And, um, he, uh, everyone thinks that he's going to be sort of a Nelson Mandela of poetry a man of great honor. And he is more interested in drinking wine and trying to party with his students and perhaps sleep with them if he can. And, um, he's also obsessed with frozen waffles, which he's never eaten, but he has a sort of, he's has a bit of a fetish for frozen waffles. It's just, he's been in jail too long. So he's kind of, yeah. You know, so he gets he gets into this situation of, he arrives and it's the expectations are different, and he's plagued by these incredible um, pa- panic attacks where he just will faint and have these visions. And so as the movie goes on, you kind of figure out what they're about, and they're related to how he got out of jail in the first place. Um, and then he meets an undocumented worker from Honduras who um, inadvertently breaks into his faculty house. He catches the man, and then instead of turning him over to the police, he makes a deal with him. We had a pretty big budget; it fit sixty thousand uh, dollars. So we, it doesn't look like a. It was my MFA th- thesis film, but it doesn't really, maybe look what people as people might think a student film would look like. It has um, stars Costas Mandalore, I should mention who is. Um, he's the detective in the Saw horror franchise of movies.
0: And you know, I haven't the, seen any of those, but I do remember that in one of the things that you sent me describing some of the stuff about the film, that uh, he is renowned for being a handsome man.
1: He was the sexiest man in the world, according to People magazine, in 1995 or 1996. So he uh, was. You know,
0: that's not a bad thing to have on your resume.
1: <laughs> no. And he was known as, in, the, in Sex in the City, he was known as the sexy priest. Uh, oh god like
0: it's depressing to me that that is actually a reference point that's meaningful to me but <laughs> i think i saw that one
1: yeah most people who watch that show remember him and and then um he was in uh beowulf and mobsters with anthony quinn and he was in this movie called the doors which was the oliver stone movie I yeah think, of um, course i saw that um, yeah so he's he's had a long career he's never played a comedy uh role before so it's kind of awesome that he's he took this on, and and we have a, a stable of other great uh, supporting actors from a variety of films, um, they're from The Sopranos and from uh, Burn After Reading, etc. The Coen Brothers' movie. So it's it's a great cast. It's an amazing. Uh, it was a real adventure making it, and so um, we just sent that started sending that out to festivals um, this month actually.
0: And I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um... Like not just this particular film, but just your your whole process when you start thinking. Because I know you're think, you're working on an, your next film already, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're in the writing process now. Well, we
1: finished so, the script. Yeah.
0: Did we you? Finished. Oh, congratulations! Yes. That's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're, and I know that tends to be more collaborative than you know poetry writing is for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I know you have a writer writing partner you're working with, but just I'm curious about the ways in which um, the two different genres of writing actually butt up against each other for you?
1: Well, I feel like it's a natural extension to write screenplays after you write poetry, because I think there's a certain compression in poetry that you're already sort of trained to try to do a lot with a little bit of space. And you don't have much, you have no space in screenwriting. I mean, time is money in film, so you need to be very quick with how you write things, scenes, and how you set them up. So that whole thinking serves a person very well. And I also think that um, poets have pretty well. Well, hopefully they have pretty good ears, and so they can hear the language um, and the rhythms of of the prose that you're writing in in the screenplay, and just make it kind of crackle and pop a little more, and be a little more vivid. That you know, you. you you work with images and poetry, so that helps you when you have to write images in a screenplay. Uh, and then um, there's, I think, a kind of uh, um, it's it's not well. I'm, the screenplays I'm talking about they have a kind of formal dimension. They have they have like certain conventions um, in commercial f- uh, films. So mm-hmm. you you know it's almost like you're writing. I don't know. Think any poetic form like a sestina or something, but. It's just a massive... Yeah,
0: it no, makes total sense to me.
1: Yeah, it's a massive Sestina. And I don't want to totally reduce, because there's other ways to write screenplays. And I, in fact, I didn't write a formulaic one at all. But um, I do think there are... I can see now that there's sort of like... It's like a form that you could try to just perfect if you were obsessed enough and just be like, I'm going to learn to write this conventional kind of plotted screenplay. Because a lot of it's just story. You know, you're just dealing with story, like how to move story and get people from A to B and sort of, um, very mundane kind of plot elements. Uh, and then in our case, we're writing comedy, so that's plot and then jokes and sort of like, uh, yeah. So I feel like that in that way, it's been very useful to have a poetry background. Um, that makes
0: a lot of sense to me. Even, well, even just thinking in terms of, uh, what I know about, writing screenplays uh and just the approach of crafting them and particularly the more formulaic ones or television writing even more so it seems like uh time and the number of pages actually sort of uh, you know would be analogous to what we think of as the poetic line in terms of being a way that you would measure your way through the form
1: mhm i think um, that's true yeah
0: yeah, just the way the time operates in, in film. I mean, certainly from when it's finished. I mean, I know, obviously, it's a completely different... There's so much that happens, up, you know, and it requires... What I'm so intimidated by it as a medium is just the huge number of people that have to work collaboratively, mm-hmm. um, you know, and behind the scenes in this sort of invisible way in order to get a finished artwork that is that that it feels alive, you know, that there's, mm-hmm. that there's just so many hands that, that go into that.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: And uh, it, so it is that, does that feel, is that kind of a relief to have those two completely different modes of, of operation for you? Because poetry is obviously such a solitary way of, of creation.
1: Yeah. For me, uh, when I started, uh, writing poetry, um, I was always sort of thinking, well, it, pretty early on, like, I'd like to make this poem into a film or something, but I didn't, it was a vague notion, um, and I, I wasn't paying attention to the the social versus solitary sort of uh, bifurcation that occurs with writing versus other kinds of art making. But I did, I did at a certain point. I don't remember when, but I thought, yeah, I know, I can't be alone lit this much all the time. It's not good mm-hmm. for me, you know. I, it's not. It's really not good for me to be. And I like to work. I've always worked uh, in collaboration. Um, even in like when I was in high school, I played on a, a lot of teams. I was a captain of some teams, uh, teams, and and president of my high school, etc. So, I feel like I've always kind of gravitated towards. Um, you, you know, I ran a business, you know, for years. Like just, I like to run things, and I like to, but in a collaborative way. I'm not a dictatorial person. I don't think so. Um, but I get energized by the social interaction. Not all the time. I think ideally, which is what's great about cinema is you don't, you're not always with Mm. people, but, um, but if you're a good, if you're good at delegating, it's not as bad as it might seem. I think it was really important to go to film school for me, because I got to see, oh, this is kind of how you do it. And then I worked equally important was working on uh, Guy Madden's movie.
0: yeah, evil. that's the <laughs> that was one of the anecdotes I was going to try to prompt.
1: Yeah, so working on that, which I saw oh this is a working director, and he directs in a style that it was not the way we were taught at film school. It's totally different. Um, in a way, it's more collaborative and more less top down than um, which what is tends to be a more militaristic hierarchical notion, at least in North American film sets. Um, but but Guy had a way more open style, and I kind of I adopted that style. I sort of st- tried to steal what he was doing, um, how he worked with actors a little bit, and uh, and with crew. But I, I, I totally love that there's all these people, and I, I would like just ask on set, like, tell people, like, hey, if you have an idea, please just come and tell me, because... Or even in pre-production, I did a lot of pre-production, but like I like working with the designers, and working with the set decorators, and location people, and the makeup people, and the costumes. It's just like, bring it's awesome. They just bring you stuff and they say, well, do you think this person would look good in that dress? And you're like, yes or no, or show me something else. Okay, perfect. And then often, like, I would just say, hey, I don't know anything much about your specific, uh, you know, specialty. So, like, I defer to your knowledge. So we, it was important to me to hire. I hired really good people, like, the best people I could find. Um, so that I think was the big thing it was like being prepared and being open and then being like, okay, I realize my limitations are vast and I need help. And the, there's like already a person who's an awesome cinematographer. He should be the one who's, you know, like, uh, I yeah, remember making
0: those decisions about composition. and Yeah. Things.
1: Like I remember what the first scene we shot was this weird sort of sex scene in a bathroom. It's, it's a dream sequence. And, um, I hadn't really, you know, we were, hadn't really had time to rehearse and, I was not, I looked at the camera, the monitor for a second and they have this thing called Video Village, which is like a remote uh, tent thing where you can look at the, you don't even have to go onto the set as a director, you can just watch it on a screen. But I was like, I don't want to be on that thing. I want to be beside the camera. And my DP, my cinematographer at first was like, oh, you're one of those like, old, I think he said like old fashioned directors, like you, you, you just want to look at the, the acting. You know, like, you just, like, want to, you want to work with the actors, like, exactly, like, you're awesome, and I love the framing, we've already talked about this, I know what you're going to do, I don't need to check your work, I just need to, like, do my job, which is hopefully to pay attention to what the actors are doing and give them some adjustments and suggestions, you know, so... Yeah, I I totally love the um, just talking about it. I'm like, oh, I want to do this. Yeah, again. no, you,
0: your your entire <laughs> voice shifted in tone. It's really, yeah. it's really cool. Well, I could totally. I mean, it, I think it really suits your personality too. I mean, you are, I mean, in my experience with you, you, you I think are a very social person, and I think that from the conversations we've had about, yeah, like the different things you've done from high school on, that that working within groups is something that you find really stimulating and I could see how it would be really satisfying and rewarding to have this practice to balance the very solitary work of, you know, hammering out a poem for weeks by yourself in the Exa- dark, you know.
1: Exactly. That is the, um, that is the, the um, that is the nicer sort of balance to me is just I do, I I don't, I'm not, uh, not, I don't think I'm actually an extrovert. Like I need to be alone sometimes. So to recharge and uh, unlike people, I guess extroverts supposedly they feed off the social stuff they get. But I I, I do and then I get tired. So writing is a nice, writing poetry is a really nice antidote to that for me.
0: Now, was working um, on the Guy Madden film, was that the first film set that you worked on that wasn't, you know, through through film school
1: uh yeah yeah that was
0: and um like so what was it that you were doing on that film
1: when i arrived i was a volunteer and i just showed up and i had i think i had corresponded with guy a little bit uh by email through a friend of a friend and then um i just flew to winnipeg in the summer and they just gave me a broom and they said uh you see those metal filings all over the floor we want you to sweep them up. So I, I <laughs> so swept.
0: starting at the bottom.
1: Yep. I swept for seven days, like 12 or 14 hours a day or whatever it was. Um, and it was an old metal filings. I'm sure that dust was not healthy because it was an old factory in Winnipeg. And it, they'd made something probably toxic, but whatever. We were sweeping out the thing because we were shooting there. And then they asked me if I could hang a door and do basic carpentry. And I had to admit that I wasn't so great at that because I didn't know how to do it. So, um, But they were kind enough to bring me to, to work um, as a set dresser or assistant set dresser. So I drove around in a truck trying to buy people's estate sale toilets and ancient artifacts of mirrors and things like that. Um, and did
0: you have like a specific list of stuff that you were hunting down?
1: My The set dresser, whose name was Matt Holm, um, he knew he knew what he wanted, but I didn't I just followed him. I was just helping. Um, but I should say that the way I actually got out of sweeping the floor initially was that I went to pick up uh, the, after the first few days, they asked me how I was getting to work and I, I explained I was taking the bus from my aunt's house mm-hmm. who lives in southern southern part of the city and it was like an hour and a half. it was pretty far. And so um, they said, would you like to would you like a car? And I said, yes, I would love a car. And they said, would you like a cell phone? I said, yes, I would love a cell phone. And they said, <laughs> they said well, um, if you would just pick up the actors on your way to work, that would be awesome. And I was like, okay. So the first day I picked up Udo Kier, the great German actor who is known. He was a, uh, Andy Warhol's Dracula. He plays Dracula. And uh, he's been in like Yeah, a no, hundred. I
0: know who exactly. He's got such an amazing face, actually. Yeah.
1: He was also in Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Barbed Wire with Pam- Pamela Anderson. And, uh, <laughs> I missed those. Yeah, but... The the recent <laughs> Lars von Trier movie, Melancholia. He's in that. Um, oh, who is he in that? He plays like a wedding seeing... wedding planner guy. He has a, a few a few great little lines. He's in a lot of um, Lars's movies actually. Um, okay. So anyway, Udo uh, is German and. I, you know it's, it's it sounds like a total stereotype but i was i think i was slightly late to pick him up but i knew uh-huh. for for sure because he all he said to me was i think he was wearing a white hat and a white jacket and he said you're late <laughs> so he, he said you're late it was like 1 minute and 20 seconds late and he threw his newspaper at me and jeez oh, I walked him to the car, and we got in, and I drove him. And he saw I had a book of poetry sitting on the console. And he said, what's that? And I said, that's, that's my new book. It's my first book. It just came out like last week. They sent me a copy. And then he just totally changed. He was like, you a poet? You a poet? I said, yeah. He said, oh, my God. He was like, why are you sweeping the floor? Why do they have you sweeping the floor? And then he started berating Guy about the fact that he, this is an injustice. You have a poet sweeping the floor. How could you do this? Like, this is so uncivilized.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Germans are very serious about poetry.
1: Yeah. he was loving it. So then we became friends and we palled around at night. And then um, actually all the actors that were out of town and myself were like a little crew of people. We'd roll around Winnipeg trying to find stuff to do. But, um, but then, I, so he got me into the set dresser off the sweeping and then, I think I built some parts of this three-story house that they were building. Yeah, I did a little bit of work on that. And then they asked me if I wanted to be a script supervisor. and I, Which is a big jump. I didn't know what that was. I was like, yes. Right. And they, oh, <laughs> you've done this before. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, no, had no idea. So I, um, I learned as I went. And that was awesome because I got to be beside Guy and um, just watch him and also help the actors who um, needed help with their lines. And I did a little bit of rehearsal with actors, like in their dressing rooms, because I was socializing with them. So um, I got to see different processes, like Jason Patrick versus Isabella Rossellini versus Udo Kier. You know, they had uh, Louis Nagan, the great Canadian actor. Louis Nagin um, spent a lot of time with him. And they were all very, very different artists. Um, so it was a super great education. Yeah, I was just
0: gonna say it's an amazing education.
1: Yeah, Isabella said to me one day, she was like, "Why are you going to film school? This is film school." I said, "You're right. You're right. This is film school." (laughs) Yeah, she she loved it. She loves Guy's uh, style of directing. She said because it's not like the Americans. She said because it's much it's much friendlier and calmer. The set is, you know, you don't have people barking orders at you. It's just like you can chill out. And he would ask for suggestions and help, and it was really quite quite lovely. 21. Well, and
0: I think it's it's really interesting, too, that his style is so, uh, you know, it would be characterized as experimental or avant-garde, or, you know, it's, it's definitely so um, innovative and uh, doing something outside the mainstream, but he, he's also been very successful at getting his films distributed and seen, and, uh, you know, I think um, learning from that kind of style and bringing that into your own work would be just such an incredible opportunity yeah, yeah I would think it would be a much better education than what you would learn in a classroom
1: it certainly helped me when I went to work on other people's sets in film school that I after that summer I remember I was like oh I know how to do all these other jobs because I watched people do them at least I could fake it you know so mm-hmm. like like assistant directed someone's film for them or you know I would I just I just understood like this is how you run a make a feature film and with not a lot of money in a short time window, um, so yeah, and the yeah. fluidity
0: of that, like you said, like being open to finding out that the the volunteer that you were sort of handing odd jobs to every day actually is someone who you want to get involved in in overseeing the development of the script, like that. That requires such a open state of mind and approach to the development, you know, like, especially like in the middle of making something where you think that everything needs to be really locked down in order for it to work efficiently. It's really, really kind of almost like dazzling to imagine a a context in which that's all left open and, and there's that possibility to hand something over to somebody that you didn't, you know, you weren't even taking seriously like two weeks earlier.
1: Right, exactly, and it it helped that I was pretty cheap since I was right working for free, <laughs> but I mean, then they did end up paying me. That was the other sweet thing. At the end of the summer, they gave me some money, so I was like, "Oh, that's great, that's nice." So it was. It ended up not being so bad, but but I do agree that he has a certain fluidity that I've tried to I've tried to hold that um, hold that as an example.
0: Well, before we we wind up and stuff, I wanted to also segue into just. I, like I had this great book and I couldn't find it before uh, Before I sat down to call you, mm. but I bought it TIFF that was on, you know, it's a book about, po- I'm not even going to remember the title, it's a, you know, a collection of essays about um, sort of the poetics of film, mm. uh, and I, of course I got super excited, I saw it, I had to buy it, and then, you know, I have a hundred books that I'm trying to deal with at the same time. I haven't had time to read it, but there were a lot of, part of the reason I bought it was it, um, you know, name checked a lot of filmmakers as, po- it was sort of looking at specific filmmakers, a lot of European filmmakers in particular, um, as poets. And mm-hmm. I know like Jim Jarmusch wanted to be a poet and then ended up becoming a mm-hmm. filmmaker. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious which poets, um, or not which poets, which filmmakers you hold in the same kind of esteem that you would hold, um, some of your favorite poets.
1: Oh, um, okay, well, I mean, Pasolini was a poet, uh, Mm -hmm. so he's awesome in, in, in whatever, you know, whatever fashion. Uh, but I love, um, I love, of course, Chris Marker, uh, the French, the great recently deceased French filmmaker who also wrote novels and journalism. I believe he, um, he, wrote, uh, he might even have written poetry, but Chris Marker is a big one, uh. I love Ulrich Seidel, who's an Austrian filmmaker um, who doesn't write poetry as far as I know. But yeah, he has a certain, there's a poeticism to the n- way he tells narratives. Um, so I love I love Seidel. Um, I love uh, Dusan Makevich, uh, who is just a completely poetic, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe Makevich. But he's just, a, he, is, he has a, a poet's sensibility in the way he tells stories. Uh, Of course, Ziga Vertov, that's the man with the movie camera guy. I love this Iranian filmmaker named Mohammad Rasulaf, who also Mm -hmm. is um, fantastic. Kind of like a deep feeling in his work. I feel feel like there's a... It's super metaphorical and very simple. He has to work under the constraints of Iranian censorship, so it's tough. Steve McQueen... um, Especially the, the IRA movie he made called Hunger. That's a really poetic, uh, it's really and imagistic. I've seen it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Guy Madden, uh, a Japanese filmmaker named uh, Shohei Imamura, who's just uh, awesome. Uh, awesome pigs in battleships. There's an the insect woman. Aki Karasmaki, who's Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Or rather, sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, let me repeat that. Aki Karasmaki, who is Finnish. He's yeah. He's Finnish. He's not.
0: Actually, I have to say when you were, I just recently watched, because uh, I, I somehow had never seen it, but Leningrad Cowboys Go mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about the way you're describing the plot of your new film that made me think of that, even though I think they're very different, but. Uh, oh, it's
1: totally influenced by that. Totally influenced Yeah. By I was that. thinking, I almost
0: brought it up and then I thought, uh, It's,
1: know. it's more his uh, aerial trilogy, Match Factory Girl and such from the late 80s. That's. Those, fun, those uh, comedies he made, were, which were sort of the breakout ones in the West for him, those are the that kind of humor, that Scandinavian sensibility. Um, Roy Anderson, who's just a, amazing, amazing. He's like a genius, that guy. And then Johan van der Koeken, uh, Dutch uh, film essay. Coen Brothers, Godard, you know Truffaut. Uh, I want to only mention two other guys. Of course, Scorsese, can't forget him. But there's this Filipino guy named T- uh, Kidlat Tahimik. And he, um, I, I don't even know how to describe it. He made this uh, this film essay, in the, I guess it was in the 70s. And um, it's kind of about colonialism. And I, I, I don't even want to uh, to spoil it. I just would say, uh, go watch it. It's called Perfumed Nightmare. And okay. uh, yeah, that, that guy is a total poet. He's funny too. I just was a little bit like monomaniacal about, I'm just going to, because I felt like I had no cinema background and I didn't grow up with a television, you know, even in, in Ghana there was no electricity, but even in Canada we never really had, we had like a black and white TV with one channel or something, uh, maybe two, but we just weren't allowed really to watch TV. So right. I didn't go to movies, so I just felt like, okay, I'm going to go to film school and I need to get up to speed. So I spent a few years before that just watching insane numbers of movies um that was my way
0: no it's so it's so smart it's I love how methodical you you, you (laughs) are about it too and I also love because I think it resonates so much with the work and the poem that I wanted you to read um but uh the fact that all of your favorite filmmakers are from all over the world I think is um not surprising to me based on you know the Global awareness of your poetry as well, but I think it's it's really refreshing because I haven't heard someone name check that many, you know, that many filmmakers from that many different countries and continents mm. <laughs> in such a short span of time. You know? Yeah, I mean,
1: that's yeah, it's too bad because all the good movies are coming from not. I mean, I don't want to slag uh, North Americans because I am one. No,
0: I you it's okay. You can do. You're friends, a friends. You friend. There's
1: know? a lot of really good filmmakers <laughs> from. The other other parts of the world, for sure. So well, and it's I, such uh, an
0: accessible window into seeing what daily life might look like in other places that you might not have the opportunity to visit. You
1: know, totally, totally, totally.
0: All right. Well, I can't keep you on the phone all night, even though it would be very easy for me to keep talking. Um, but could could you read Word, Word uh, World Town" before we go?
1: Yes, I I would be right. happy to read "World Town." This poem was one that I wrote while living on an island off the coast, uh, northeastern part of Brazil. An island called Itaparica. Um, And it's part of the state of Bahia, which is the most African state in Brazil. Felt a lot like the Caribbean, a mixture of the Caribbean and Western Africa living there. Um, I got uh, pretty sick there, contracted dengue fever and was out of commission for a while and when I came out of a fever dream I wrote this poem uh, after hallucinating in a hammock under a mosquito net for probably about 10 days. Um, and it was partly triggered by hanging out with a photographer from Finland who was also staying on that island at the time and he had been photographing people in their homes and one of the homes he shot was um, made out of doors. So he told me about that, we went to see it. And so that's kind of a central image. And also, I was imagining what this island had looked like when it had been a thriving um, center for industry, particularly, I believe, tanneries, were one of the main things that was on the island. So all that was left when we were there were just kind of ruins and some of these small towns that had um, flourished years before, world town. Entirely windless, today's sea Of these waters many names the best seemed Field of pearl leaves For it smelled like the air In the house he built entirely of doors Pink school door Gold of the burnt hotel Two old church blues The abandoned banks, steel doors singular and immovably wedged over the family's heads Though as with everything corroding the sense of themselves slipping away in the heat falling through the day's brightness the way soldiers once fell upon him walking home with a bucket of natural water as he had been recalling the town square before the tannery's closing he and his father shopping on horseback in the noon prasa where they first saw a man crouched under a black shroud what his father called a camera his father forgot the incident immediately, but for years the man asked whomever if they remembered a camera, vegetable stalls, the butcher holding the cleaver, a horseshoeing shop, purple berries, the long cassava valley haze, fish nets, a few crab baskets and browning nets drying by the ice cream shop, seven taverns, a small, unused ferry terminal a map on its wall outlining the island in blue, the names Good Dispatch, Lover's Bridge, pointed to by a mermaid of skin whiter than anyone on this island of Angola's descendants, her red hair.
0: This podcast was brought to you by House of Anansi Press. To learn more about our authors, visit us at houseofanansi.ca.